Welcome to another edition of Atlas Information Live. We are so happy that you could join us today. And if it's your first time uh, visiting us, if you're, it's, this is your first time um, as a guest of Atlas Info Live, we are so happy to have you. It's always uh, wonderful to have new people showing up. And uh, we hope you will get a great deal of benefit from today's discussion. As usual, but perhaps even more so than usual today, we encourage you to take advantage of the link that's on the screen or in the chat and, uh, and join in the discussion because this is going to be, hopefully we can have a bit more of a informal, not that our shows are ever really formal by any stretch of the imagination, but <clears throat> given where we are at, given that it's the Labor Day long weekend, and given that the, uh, the great effort that we recently attained a milestone on, and that's the, the writing of our book, and the fact that Last week, we handed the manuscript in for editing. So this is a major step forward in the process of getting the book published, obviously. Completing the man manuscript is sort of a prerequisite. And it was a self-imposed deadline to uh, have the manuscript completed by the end of August, by the end of the summer. And sure enough, we successfully we hit that target. We we successfully made that deadline. And it goes without saying that it was a tremendous relief. It was a tremendous release. This any time that we complete any sort of major undertaking in our life, uh, we can obviously feel that way, that it's you know, we've reached another level, we've reached another milestone, whatever the case may be. It could even be something like building a house or uh, any, other, any other enterprise, any other project. It could be a renovation project, completing the kitchen, this, this type of thing. And there is, and the longer that we are at that project, even if it's a passion project or some hobby project, maybe it's fixing up an old car or fixing up an old boat or something to that effect. And we've been working on it for months and months and months and months. When we reach one of these milestones of completion, it's an opportunity for us to, to take a pause, to take a break, to take a rest. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we are taking a break from doing our live streams, obviously. 
but we thought it would be a good opportunity to share some of our experience and some of our insights regarding the path and the work and how and why and when we know how to take a break. And the reason why we felt this would be an appropriate topic for a more informal discussion, but one that's related to our own experience and related to the events that recently took place in our life and on our path. Uh, and it's also thematic to the fact that this is the Labor Day long weekend. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a holiday designated to celebrate all those who labor day in and day out. And Labor Day is uh, a, a, an acknowledgement of their hard work and its intention or its spirit is to give everyone a, a little reprieve, a little long weekend, particularly before the beginning of, for many young people anyway, the beginning of the school year, which to the best of our knowledge will begin on Tuesday for most young people here in North America, at least. And you might think, well, this seems like a very light topic or it seems very obvious. Like I know when I need to take a break. I'm tired. I'm this, I'm that, I'm, you know, I'm exhausted or, you know, what, what have you. But if you're anything like we were when we were starting out on the path and if you were anything like we were in our younger years, it wouldn't be fair to say that we were ever a workaholic. It was never, an, it was never a, a workaholic. That's a different kind of mentality. Workaholism is actually a form of laziness. Someone who is always busy and always doing and doing, 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 working, 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 working. It's because they're avoiding something else. They're avoiding spending time with themselves. Just like alcohol is that escape that leads to alcoholism, all isms, all uh, addictions are attempts for an individual to medicate themselves because of self-loathing. There's something about themselves that, that deep down they don't want to see, they don't want to face, they don't want to deal with. So they seek some form of escapism to, to not have to deal with that aspect of themselves. And that's why things like video games or shopping or alcohol or drugs or gambling. These are all typical addictions. One that is not 
spoken of much is workaholism. And perhaps the reason it's not spoken of is because workaholics are very beneficial to the big machine, to companies, and so on. Workaholics who, out of choice, work 12, 14, 16, 18 hours a day, and they're always in the office, they're always you know, pushing themselves and everything else. Like to many, to many companies, heartless, soulless ones, of course, this is a, a can be of tremendous benefit because individuals like that can be of a, uh, can be a tremendous asset. Now, in certain circumstances, it turns out that they're not that much of an asset and we can get into that and we will get into that in a way. So we're not, we're not, we were never a workaholic. Right. So that was never our issue. But what we were was safe to say we were obsessive compulsive and we were afraid. And you all know about our relationship with fear. And fear is also the need to control. We've discussed this many times. And so the need to the desire to do a good job, the desire to not let the world down. This is a tremendous fear that we carried with us. It was a tremendous burden. It literally was an Atlas complex that we lived with for many, 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 many years. We felt the weight of the world on our shoulders and we were terrified that we might drop the ball, literally drop the big blue marble from our back. And this led to, at times, very unhealthy and very uh, unsustainable behavior, an unsustainable work ethic that lean towards obsessive compulsive disorder than it did towards good old fashioned, you know, Protestant discipline, right? <laughs> or something, <laughs> you know, it was, it was not, it was not that, you know, we, we convinced ourselves. I rationalized, I justified for myself. Oh, well, I got to do a good job and I got to do this guy. You know, the mind will rationalize these things. The mind rationalizes every obsessive compulsive behavior and every over the top, you, you know, uh, activity and, and, and the, uh, the drive, the determination, you know, the hard work, because it's always hammered into our, our heads, right? Since we were kids, hard work, hard work, hard work and discipline and hard work and, you know, bring down the hammer and, you know, you gotta, you gotta whip yourself into shape and and all this stuff and it's no pain no gain and all this now there is truth to no pain no gain but not self-inflicted pain <laughs> it's, it's you know it's like like um in the uh the da vinci code movie right the fanatical uh catholic priest that's hunting them down right? and he's he's flailing himself 
with the with the barbed uh, medieval uh, flail, and he's whipping himself. The you know, and he's and he's tearing up the skin on his back. You know, that's a self-flagellation. That um, gosh, what did they even call that? In the uh, wasn't it wasn't so much penance. It was something else that they were doing. It's self-flagellation is the technical term, but there was I think there was another uh, uh, religious term uh, associated with that behavior. Uh, in any case, that's in the moment, however, our mind rationalizes the hard work and the discipline and pushing ourselves and not letting people down and not letting God down. If that's, you know, if that's the work we're talking about or not letting my higher self down, uh, and that fear pushes us too hard, too fast, too long, and too far, then inevitably, invariably, we will crash. Even if we turn to performance-enhancing drugs to keep us going. And by that, I mean excessive amounts of coffee. But what are the kids drinking these days? Red Bull? right? All those energy drinks that are filled with, uh, what are they filled with? Guarna or Guarama or whatever the hell that stuff is and caffeine and sugar and everything, right? To, to try to keep ourselves going, to keep pushing ourselves. Uh, and this, these are just, these are performance enhancing drugs. They're artificially stretching us out. I was at one time, Again, I, well, it's not fair to say I was addicted to coffee. It's not fair to say that. Uh, carbs and sugar, perhaps. Not really so much the caffeine, but I did use caffeine. I did use caffeine for its performance-enhancing uh, qualities <clears throat> uh, for wakefulness. At the time that I still struggled with this, things like Red Bull and uh, energy drinks hadn't really come to North America. So we, if you wanted caffeine, we had to drink Coca-Cola or coffee. And coffee was obviously plentiful. So uh, that was not an issue. Um, <clears throat> and when we find the teachings, when we get into the formal application of our path, our formal studies in esotericism, for example. And we listen to, uh, for example, uh, if we listen to lectures, perhaps this one, perhaps others, Glorienne, or uh, we read books by Blavatsky or Manly P. Hall or Samael Anboyor, particularly if we read Samael Anboyor, there is an urgency in the writing. There is an urgency in the presentation. And this urgency, while warranted and while important, to someone with a, a fear-based and outlook, someone who's worried about not doing what he came here to do or not succeeding in what he came here to do, the urgency with which 
Glorian and Samuel Bayor uh, impress upon the listener and the reader can be a volatile mix. It can be a, a double-edged sword of uh, that's that leans towards the oh my god, I'm not doing enough, and oh my god, I'm not doing fast enough or hard enough. And this, if someone in com combination with that worry, with that anxiety, with that fear, uh, someone also is susceptible to obsessive compulsive thoughts and obsessive compulsive behaviors, not, not clinically obsessive compulsive, like someone can't stop fidgeting or can't stop, you, you know, uh, you know, it's not, not, not obsessive compulsive to the point where if you went to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, they would medicate you for it. Just, but you just know yourself how there are certain things, perhaps, that you are. There's, there's something in your back, the back of your mind, telling you, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do it, and and then you you grab a hold of it and you won't let go, and you won't you won't ease up, and there's this this drive to to do it and get it done at all costs, you know, and it's this this. Uh, terrier with a bone mentality or a terrier after a rat right it's just like a terrier will not stop until it gets the rat right it's it's this type of you know that type of, that's an actual that's a primal animal mechanical ego based behavior and it's that's fundamentally fundamentally inappropriate to the path now it's not wholly incompatible and we can get into the nuance of all of this a little bit more but it is ultimately inappropriate and ultimately incompatible and again we'll get to that we'll get to that but before we get to that, we've had Stuart uh, making some comments here. He said, congratulations. Uh, and he said he's really thrilled. Uh, this is all for the uh, completion of the book. And he says, I can hear I can hear and feel you. So far, you've described your ways so similar to ways in OCD. Perfectionism leading to self-flagellation. Okay, so we didn't even mention perfectionism, did we? We didn't even... We didn't even bring up the word because it's so easy for people to say, oh, I'm not a perfectionist. Uh, <laughs> but but there you go. Everything that we, we were saying, you said, ah, well, he's, and he's talking about perfection, that A-type personality. Well, not everybody is an A-type personality. So that's why we didn't mention it, but you mentioned it, so we might as well address it. This, this, uh, we set this ridiculously high bar for ourselves and we think it's because people care, but people don't care. Uh, people don't care. They really don't. You know, the, uh, the expression, uh, the law of diminishing returns. So up to a certain point, your effort, the, the effort you put, oh, you know what this maybe maybe for this one. We might just have to get out the uh, the uh, uh, spaghetti thing and uh, 
just because we might just uh, bring our uh, spaghetti thing. So the law of diminishing returns says something like this. As you uh, put in effort, you get this really sharp increase in the in your return on investment. But then eventually your it plateaus. So if we call this 0% effort and this 100% effort somewhere in that let's say, you know, 60%, right? It starts to taper off. So somewhere somewhere here right? Well, I'll call it 60% there. Okay. So up until in this zone, right? In this zone, you got a, uh, a good return. And um, like a, the ratio goes from maybe, you know, 10 to one to, uh, you know, you know, two to one or, uh, or even, um, but then here it's, it's goes to one to one. So for every unit of effort, you get one unit of return, but then in this area, so, so let's say one to one is like something there, but then in the last 10%, so from 90%, Okay, so let's call this um, uh, 60 to 90, and then 90 plus. The law of diminishing returns says the ratio is uh, becomes 1 to 2, and then 1 to 4, right? So the, uh, so I guess we said that in the reverse. Um, at the beginning, you get 10, uh, a return of 10 value for every one effort you put in. Because from zero at the beginning, like from going like, think about it in terms of sprinting, right? The effort it takes to go from 0% to a walk, it, it practically makes no, takes no effort at all to start walking. And you start from zero kilometers an hour, you can get to what, like six, seven, eight kilometers an hour with, with relatively little effort. Now, to get to nine kilometers an hour, then you start, you know, you have to put in a little bit more effort. And then anything beyond that, you have to start running. And running is now a markedly increased effort or jogging, let's say, right? But then, Eventually, you get to the point where you're not jogging anymore, you're running. And then eventually, you get to the point where you're not running, you're sprinting. But the difference in your speed from a starting to sprint to the very fastest you can sprint, the effort is enormous to make very little gain. So, this is a law. Of mechanical nature but it applies it's it's actually superior law this law apply this is a law of uh related to the conservation of energy it's related to that that same family that same bundle of laws related to cause and effect 
and the exertion of energy and the return, the return of value for exertion of energy. So we can, in a crude way, um, we can turn to this uh, here, uh, the, the uh, law of... the diminishing returns as a guide. Now, the problem is perfectionists, <laughs> perfectionists like to be up here all the time. They're always up here. They're always trying to, they're always in this 90 to uh to a hundred percent so the effort the energy that they put into doing things to perfection it takes a lot out of you and and we can speak you know uh with with some with not some experience, with, with actually a great deal of experience on this. So, now, you're going to have to take all of this, okay, uh, with a big asterisk, okay, and a break... Um, All right, with a grain of salt. And the reason is because there are times on the path that we need to be there, that we need to be here. Because we're ultimately talking about perfection of the soul, perfection of the monad. So, but understanding that and getting that out of the way, there's a realization here that even if we don't have a uh, an A-type personality, and we're not perfectionists in the traditional sense, you know that it requires super efforts to be successful on the path. And because it takes tremendous effort, and we talk about diminishing returns up here, right? So how much little, how little progress we get, uh, con considering how much greater effort we put in. <clears throat> that's why it is that uh, we have this situation where you see that the the progress is really slow. Someone who's new to the teachings or just starting out on the path or just a normie and is not, you know, hasn't been at this for very long. All right, they're green. They're down here. So they can make comparatively great deal of progress with comparatively little effort and, and, and a, uh, a reduced period of time. But once you reach a certain point, 
it really does become uh, a case of <clears throat> slow and steady wins the race. And, and this dynamic alone <clears throat> should give all of us pause to realize, yeah, okay, I can't be sprinting all the time. You can't do it. Can't be done. And recognizing the law of diminishing returns and why we always say self-observation and self-knowledge is the key to everything is because we have to be aware of our mind, our heart, our body, our energy level, our, our capacity. There's this tremendous line from the Fellowship of the Ring. When Frodo is uh, speaking with Bilbo, and Bilbo uh, uh, Bilbo has lived, of course, in a, a long life, but he hasn't aged because he's had the ring, and the ring has kept him art, like unnaturally youthful. But Frodo admits, or sorry, Bilbo admits to Frodo, he says, but I feel feel you know weak spent like he, the way he describes it is like too little butter scraped across too much bread and there's something visceral and alive with that symbol that 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 simile we we only have so much butter to go around. And if we spread ourselves too thin, right? Like we know that expression, spreading yourself too thin, but the way Bilbo says it in the film, too little butter scraped across too much bread. We've all experienced that in our life, but we've also tried spreading too little butter on toast. We, you, you have that visceral experience. There is something so powerful about that experience <laughs> and, and that metaphor. Saying, saying stretching yourself too thin or whatever, it just doesn't have the same visceral power like, like being scraped across too much bread. And... This, uh, this power of language, we address it in the book um, in our discussion of euphemisms and soft language. But it's that the reason why we bring up the Lord of the Rings and Bilbo is that it's the ring that makes Bilbo feel that way. He's been, he's been scraped across too much bread. He's been thin out. He says, I feel thin. It's the ego, right? 
that drives us to this. And Bilbo even says, he says, I wanted to go back and revisit all of my all of the places from my previous adventures. Wander the 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 forests of Mirkwood, the paths of Mirkwood, and and visit the Lonely Mountain, and visit the elves and and everything else. He wanted to go, you know, but time catches up with him, of course. Once he's given the ring to Frodo, he doesn't have that the embodiment of the ego there anymore. So he he resigns himself to stay with the elves in Rivendell. So what's driving us, right? What's driving us? So there's, there's more comments. Let's get to these other, other comments. Um, Stuart says, I think this is the reason for taking Sabbaths so that we can give a day, a week, to be rebalanced with, with God's source. Well, look, we even, we even titled today's talk, right? On the seventh day, the Lord rested. Well, we said alux, right? All light and God light, right? Al-lux, al-lux, like Allah or Elohim, right? El means God. So al-lux is God light. On the seventh day, the light rested. The word rested. The logos rested. And again, that's there precisely, precisely to remind us that if even God takes breaks, who the hell are we to think we don't need them? Stuart says, uh, mild OCD linked to hypersensity hyper, uh, or perhaps hypersensitivity can produce a vice-like grip on behaviors. So the best intentions turn to dust in the tension of that grip, it appears to me. That's a... Uh, <clears throat> An interesting observation and another powerful visceral visualization. And what comes to mind is using a blade, any type of sword, even a kitchen knife. If you hold on to a kitchen knife with a vice grip because let's say you're afraid that it's going to slip out of your fingers and fall on the floor or like stab you in the foot or you're going to cut yourself because you're it's it's you're not you don't have you will cut yourself you will cut off your fingers if you hold a knife with a vice like grip you can't even if you're chopping right? You can use a pinch grip, but you lose all dexterity. You lose all fluidity. You lose all control. The ability to work, the ability to be one with the, uh, the implement, the instrument. And this is true for a hammer. It's true for a screwdriver. It's true for a saw. It's true for a pencil. It's true for anything. It's true for parts of your body. It's you lose power. You lose the power. You lose a dexterity and agility if you tense up. All you have to do is look at 
uh, old footage of Bruce Lee and his and his one inch punch. The way our acting sensei described it, and he taught when he's taught Laban movement and the, the uh, uh, his Lascomian method of acting, which we've mentioned many times, he taught as a martial art. He said the key to acting is controlled relaxation. You're you're in total control. You have total awareness over your body. You have total awareness of your movements, and your 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 body is an instrument. It needs to emote in every conceivable possible way all the different energies and efforts that the character is working with and using. And you're painting with energy. You cannot paint a beautiful Technicolor canvas of energy if you're tensed up and gripping with a vice grip. Because all you will exude is stressed, tensed energy. And you will, you will be monochrome. You will be a monochrome actor. That's why people who are really terrible public speakers, it's because they're terrified. It's because they're afraid. And they're tense. And they get up there and they're like a wooden board. And they're exuding their fear and they're, 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 they're exuding this. And they're trying to, they're trying to get a grip. You know that we have that expression, get a grip on yourself. No, no, don't get a grip on yourself. Relax, relax, let it go. Let go of your need to get a grip on yourself or get a handle on the situation and be in control of the situation. You want controlled relaxation. It's the Chinese finger puzzle paradox. The harder you pull, on the on the finger puzzle, the, the more it grips and holds on to your fingers in the in the uh, the, the the Chinese uh, finger puzzle trap. The way to get out of a Chinese finger puzzle trap is to relax, relax and and just move your fingers together, and then the trap releases its grip on you, and then you're free. Anything that happens in the physical universe, it has its analogy in the metaphysical universe, which means these physical analogies that we are using are extremely powerful because everybody knows what it's like to have a vice grip on something or to be in a vice grip. And we know what that feels like, and that that the tension, the anxiety, the 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 immobility, the inflexibility of that, the energy that gets wasted doing that. And we all know there's something in your life that you do that you hold on to with just a relaxed, easy, loose, but controlled application. Maybe it's, Maybe, you know, you, you brush your hair before you go to bed a hundred times, right? Before, or something like me. And just, it's just part of your, perhaps your morning ritual or your evening ritual that you brush your hair and it helps you relax, helps prepare you for bed. You're not holding that brush with a vice grip, <laughs> right? It's you're, you're holding, you're, you're half, you're already drifting off to sleep or you're, you know, you're contemplating your day and everything else and you're. You know, you're, you're, you're winding down and everything else. This is the, we all have something that we do that 
we can relate this physical analogy to. But the important part is comprehending and understanding how this relates mentally and emotionally and how we approach the path and the work. We'll, and we'll continue getting into this deeper, but we don't want to fall beha- behind on the, uh, on the chats. Uh, Stuart says, uh, perfectionists enter the mountaineer's death zone in a way. It's exhausting and unmanageable. Uh, the mountaineer's death zone. Is that the very top? Is that like, like close to the peak? We're guessing. It's exhausting and unmanageable. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the final, it's that last little bit, right? It's the hardest, it's the hardest bit. And again, there is an aspect of this related to the path of you know needing to be in this uh 90 to uh, 90 to 100% space in that perfectionist space but not all the time it's where we're getting to and again we'll we'll get into that in in more detail in just a minute but first L- looks custo says <clears throat> Thank you, Atlas, for explaining the law of diminishing returns in relation to the path, because sometimes one moves so slow, it feels like one is not moving at all. Well, that's okay. This is the flip side of doing all this work, and why am I not getting any progress? Why am I not seeing any progress or feeling any progress? And Luke says, in comparison, to when one first walks the path and notices changes very quickly. Yes, again. And it's the path is really designed that way because everything is designed that way. The law of diminishing returns is universal. And if we want to put it in terms of the alm of life, okay, let's... Uh, You know what? We're just going to. <clears throat> what are we going to do here? And if we delete, we should be able to delete that. Nope. Can we delete that? Nope. E E L space. Oh well. Here, delete. <clears throat> okay. So. Okay, this is the alm of life. Right? It's a spiral pattern. And we all know that this is Jacob's ladder and Dante's ladder. If you cut off the sides, you have rungs. You have levels. Okay? And you know that to get to the next higher level, to get to the each higher level on this ladder, You have to do one full revolution of the alm of life. So to get from level one to level two, you do this little part here. But to get to level two to level three, you now got to go all the way, right, around 
to here. To get to each next higher level, you got to go to each next lower level. But in terms of effort, <clears throat> look at the distance that you travel. You're only you're only getting this this distance in terms of spiritual level in terms of level of being but look at how much effort you have to put in to get to get plus one level when the the, the higher level you get Like you guys, you guys can read the Bible in the time it takes me to draw that loop. When we say the alm of life is everything and is in everything and defines everything and how everything comes into being and not being, have you ever? seen or heard anybody ever explain the law of diminishing returns using a spiral? Even we began using the uh, the XY axes thing. We, 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 we use this, we drew this first. But from the spiritual perspective, right? This is what we need to understand. Because this, this is all fine and dandy, and we can talk about all oh, leveling off and diminishing returns and everything else. But this, okay, this here, now you feel it. Now you go, oh, okay, all right, now I understand. <laughs> the alm of life shows it and depicts it more clearly. without any numbers it's just a spatial it's a spatial relationship it's jacob's ladder it's dante's ladder it's the alm of life and not only because what the law of diminishing returns doesn't show you by any stretch of the imagination it just shows you um, the relationship, the ratio between effort and return. What the alm of life shows you is what kind of effort it takes. The nature of the effort. Not just the quantity of the effort or the intensity of the effort. But it's nature. You have to go down before you can come up. Each and every time, there is no advancing to the next level without first descending to the next lower level. You have to go down to the next lower level to get to the next higher level, and so on and so forth. You have to go deeper and deeper and deeper into hell 
to go higher and higher and higher into heaven. This is what this law of diminishing returns doesn't show you. That's not supposed to be doing that. But anyway, that's what this law of diminishing returns doesn't show you. And I don't know why this thing keeps uh, drawing all over me. Hopefully it can undo that. There we go. Okay, let's... Uh, Stuart says, uh, laughing, laughing, laughing as I, as I munch on toast and butter. <laughs> Hopefully you have plenty of butter. You didn't, you didn't run out. Hopefully you didn't try to scrape too little butter on too much toast. As Azil says, the problem being that if Alux have children, rest is not assured on weekends. <laughs> uh, if you're familiar with Genesis, God rests before he creates Adam and Eve. <laughs> In Genesis, God created everything and then finally he rested. But then but then uh, Adam and Eve come after. So so I think you're right about that. Uh, Stuart says, yeah. Above 8,000 feet, there is not enough oxygen to survive. The mountaineer's death zone chasing the highest peaks. Yeah. So, yeah, the higher you climb, there's another expression. Uh, the higher they climb, the farther they uh, the farther they fall. Or the higher they rise, the, far, the, the further they fall. And that's related, of course, to... The tragedy of man right so shakespearean tragedy greek tragedy it's always individuals in high status who fall it's always that their stories that we that we hear about because they're the most tragic stories these great individuals these great men uh who because of some flaw they 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 fell from a very high place and they they and of course In the Bible, in the, and in in the uh, in the Book of Enoch, there are stories of fallen angels, and in the Book of Enoch, they're very explicit about the beings who fell and how they fell, and the results of their fall. As Sir said, it's eight thousand meters, not not feet. You sure about that? Maybe we're not. We're, because 8,000 8, feet, 8,000 meters is eight kilometers. Maybe doesn't matter. We're, we're we're not we're not here to discuss mountaineering. It's just the it's the analogy. It's the 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 uh, symbolism of it that's important to us, not the actual physical mountain climbing. So so briefly coming back to it then. each time we do a revolution of the alm of life zoom out we'll just zoom out a bit um, each time we do 
a revolution of the alm of life, each revolution is going to take more time, more effort, and more energy. So it is, again, it's just not practical to think that we can advance at the same rate doing the same old thing, the same old amount of energy, but it also we can't believe, can't put us ourselves in the situation where we believe we can sustain and push at that same effort all the time. Now, when we talk about effort, we have to be specific. What are we referring to? Because there is an effort that we should be exerting all the time. It's the base effort. And that is, for most people, already a super effort. And that's self-observation and self-remembering. But even then, even with that, and it does take super efforts, if you feel like you need a break, take it. Take it. Stop. Unplug. Don't worry about anything. Don't worry about any esotericism or anything on the path or if if you just need to veg out and give your consciousness a rest give your concentration your visualization your mind your willpower all of these things function on a limited supply of energy we don't we don't have an unlimited we don't have access we do not have access to an unlimited source of energy forget what the new age people tell you it's not true it's just not true we need sleep we need to recharge we need to be able to rejuvenate we need to be able to nourish ourselves and yes it is good while we're eating to remain aware and conscious and present and eat mindfully and not scarf down our food mindlessly so but it doesn't mean that you know we have to we have to be meditating 24 hours a day you'll burn yourself out doing that if you start meditating, you'll burn yourself out doing an hour a day. If you start out for the first time you start meditating and you try doing an hour every day or two hours a day, you'll burn yourself out. I know. I tried it. I was there. One of the reasons why we're even giving this talk is because we, you know a lot of what a lot of what we talk about things to avoid comes from our direct experience again based on the personality that we had and but also based on our fear our, our desire 
to want to do a good job, not want to let anyone down, not want to be a failure or be seen as a failure. And the irony is that when we do push ourselves too hard for too, too long, then in, invariably we crash. And when we crash, we crash much harder and we end up creating much more of a delay than we would have had we had just taken a rest. It's the old slow and steady wins the race analogy. It's the old fairy tale of the uh, the rabbit and the the, uh, the tortoise and the hare. The tortoise and the hare, and you know the story. The tortoise is plodding along. The tortoise and the hare. Uh, they they challenge each other to a race, and the hare laughs and says, "This is going to be easy." And the hare sprints all the way to the finish and says, Oh, I got time. The tortoise is way behind. I'm going to take a nap. And while the hare is napping, the tortoise crosses the finish line. In that analogy, the hare pushed himself too hard, too fast. And he, he got sleepy. He needed, he needed to, uh, he crashed. And the tortoise who's plodding along, slow and steady, not exerting himself too much. This is by far a better approach. And that's why when we say it's not that we are encouraging you to stop your self-observation and self-remembering or, you know, remembering your divine mother or we're not telling you that you need to necessarily take a break from that. But recognize that you are not going to be able to do it 24 hours a day. And the, the it's better to be honest with yourself and recognize your, our own limits than it is to try to push ourselves to attain a level that we're not what well, we're not at yet. And we cannot be at that level yet. There's only one way to get to the next level. There's only one way. Okay, if we're here, and we want to get to here, there's only one path. And if we look at what other people are doing, we look at other people's level or their, our perception of their level and we think that they're up here 
we want to be up there, but we're but we're but we're here. This is this is this is lunacy. If we're if we're here, if we're here, this is the only place we go, and this is the only uh this is the only way we can get there. And we cannot get here unless we get here first. We get here first, and then we go around again, and then we get here second. And then we get their third. Right? We have to crawl before we walk, before we run. This is what the alm of life so clearly shows us. And the reason why it is better to talk about the law of diminishing returns this way, because it so viscerally and visually and powerfully communicates the efforts and how the law of diminishing returns actually looks and actually feels. Because how much more effort and time and intensity and everything it takes between crawling and walking and running. And of course, the next level, which we, uh, which we mentioned, uh, there. the next level up here, sprinting we got to crawl before we walk before we run before we sprint and the distance of one revolution shows the intensity the cost of effort, of time invested, of energy. And the distance of one level to another level to another level, okay, right, is shown on the vertical scale. The ladders, this is Jacob's ladder. Azazel says, yeah, and it crashes much harder each time. You can actually use the analogy of taking a road trip. You know that uh, long distance uh, drivers, those uh, or uh, air airplane pilots, they actually the the regulators 
uh, say that there is a there is a only a certain amount of time that they can be flying in a seven day period. Why do we have those regulations? Literally, literally, because if pilots push themselves too long, too hard, or airlines push their pilots too hard. You're literally going to end up with plane crashes. Literally. Or if you're going on a long road trip and you don't give yourself a chance to stop and take breaks, have a meal, just relax for half an hour or or even an hour. Go and go off the the highway and go and get out of the car and go walking on a trail or go look at a, uh, a point of interest. Or again, take your time, have a nice relaxing lunch before you get back into the car. But you see people all the time on road trips and stuff that even if they do decide that they want something to eat, they'll go through the drive through and then they're driving on the highway and they're eating stuff. You know, they're trying to eat tacos or a hamburger or whatever, French fries while they're driving with a big sugary thing. And they, you know, and maybe they got a big caffeine or an energy drink or something. And they figure they're going to pump themselves full of caffeine and sugar while they're driving. And they go, oh, we're, make, we're making good time. Uh, and statistics show that people who eat like that while they're driving, uh, it's it's almost as bad as drinking alcohol or using a cell phone. The distraction is... Uh, it's uh, very dangerous. You can literally end in a car crash. Or if you don't take that opportunity to take a break, or if you're trying to drive cross-country and you don't plan where you're going to stop to sleep overnight, and you think you're going to drive through 36 hours straight or 72 hours straight across North America or across Europe or wherever you are in the world, across Australia, you're going to do it in... 24 hours or 48 hours or 36 hours or however long you think you can do it. You could go straight through and not sleep, not rest. Well, you're just waiting for a car crash. Stuart says focused efficiency is the phrase that springs to mind. Focused efficiency. If we are talking about the baseline, all right, we're going to do some more scribbling, okay? We're going to do some more scribbling. Uh, where's our, uh, let's get this thing onto the screen here. Time for more spaghetti. Everybody loves spaghetti. Okay. We all have a heartbeat. Right? Your your heart rate right now you can take your pulse whatever it is right now let's see uh 
Right now, ours is 71 beats per minute. So we're just going to take, we're going to say 70 beats per minute. Give or take. This is like, you could say our resting heart rate is, is somewhere in, you know, 60 to 70 or who knows, right? This is what we call our, uh, our resting heartbeat, right? Now it's not zero. It's not zero. Let's uh, move ourselves out of the way here. Okay, so it's not zero. We have a resting heart rate. This is us at rest. This is, if we were talking about the, the, the path and self-observation and self-awareness, so we're talking about the work. And we talk about... Um, Right, self-observation plus uh, self-remembering. This we would call, okay, focused uh, efficiency. Efficiency. Whoop. Our spelling is terrible as well. Efficiency. There's a C in there. Okay. So this is like our resting heart rate. But we know that throughout the day, there will be opportunities and there will be need to do short bursts of um, of work. And during those moments, those times, our heart rate, you know, goes, right? And then it, and then it tapers back down. It goes back to rest. Now, would you call this focused efficiency? On the contrary, this is not focused efficiency. Uh, let's see. This is the opposite of focused efficiency. This is focused, whoops, in efficiency. And this is just how it goes. But the baseline always needs to be there in some capacity. If your heart stops, you're in big trouble. 
You're not alive. You're not, a, you're not in the world of the living. If your heart stops, if your heartbeat stops, you're not, you're no longer in the world of the living. If you stop self-observation and self-remembering, you're no longer in the world of the conscious. You're in the world of the zombies. You're in the world of the sleepwalkers. You're in the world of the unconscious. So what that means is we don't sit in meditation 24 hours a day. Can't do that. This Uh, in our analogy, okay? Now, let's uh, not use mantra, um, but we could say other practices. It's possible that mantra exists in this in this space. When you meditate, that's the time to to be intense in your uh, in your uh, in your practice. You want to meditate intensely. The reason why you can't meditate for hours and hours and hours a day when you first begin is because you're you'll burn out the circuits, <laughs> right? Because you haven't worked up to that capacity. And when we Whatever we're doing, we have to recognize our limits. We have, but what while we are doing that practice, it is not necessarily in our interests to hold back. It's only in that focused efficiency part. Stuart says, Oh. Oh, better, he says, um, focused equilibrium efficiency. <laughs> well, now you're just adding words, so we're not gonna we're not gonna uh, uh, take that in. Equilibrium is always there. Equilibrium is always there. So that's uh, we think that's redundant to begin with. But the the point here is that you can't be efficient with your energy when you meditate. If you're trying to be efficient, you won't have a good meditation. Because to use our other uh, to use our other uh, graphic here, when you meditate, you want to be here in this tail. You want to be in the uh, ninety plus percentile. This is where you want your effort in meditation to be. You don't want it in the, you don't want it here. And you certainly don't want it here because you're not going to get anything out of your meditation. How do we know that? How can we say that with, with um, any sort of uh, definity? We can say that. Well, with this, we don't need the, uh, for this for this part, we don't need the um, 
visualizations, I don't think, but I'll, I'll leave that up just, just in case. Does anybody go to the gym? Anybody work out? Anybody lift weights? You know that 90% of people who lift weights don't lift enough weight and don't lift it for long enough. There's lots of people who go to the gym. Uh, lots of people who go to the gym. And Stuart says, yeah, he exercises. Okay. So the question is, when you're lifting weights, when do you stop? If you're doing reps, you're doing a set of, let's say, bench presses or, uh, or bicep curls. And you're lifting weights. When do you stop lifting the weight? How do you know that you've that you've 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 hit your limit? <laughs> Stuart says, "When you blow out." Okay, let's use let's use some language that's not that's that's that that everybody can understand. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? You 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 blow your muscle. Until you so you keep going until you injure yourself because that's to me what blowout means like blowing out a tire on a car, that doesn't that to me doesn't seem like that's a, a a sustainable way to lift weights that you wait for something to blow out. The word is failure. You go until you fail. You go until you can't lift anymore. Now, some studies have shown that you don't have to actually go to real failure real technical failure you can go to uh one to three sets from failure so very 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 close to failure but uh in our experience you you most people underestimate what that is most people have a number in their head and when things start getting you know a little hard they stop because they don't actually know what their real failure is because they've never gone to failure. So if you've never gone to failure, how do you know uh, how close you are to failure? There's only one way to know, and that is you have to go to failure at least once to find out where that where that is for you. And you have to do that on a regular basis because as you get stronger, the number of reps you can do of an exercise of a given weight goes up. Because you're making progress. Now, it might be slow and steady progress, but you're making progress. You might be in the long end of the tail. You might be in that slow and steady uh, uh, diminishing returns phase, but you're still going to be gaining something. So if in July you do 10 reps of a bench press at 100 pounds, and you, and you can't do an 11th one. You can't do it. You push with all your strength and you can't lift the bar an 11th time. You can't even lift it an inch. Well, you know that 10 is your failure, right? So you keep bench pressing to 10. You keep bench pressing to 10, to 10, to 10, to 10, to 10. If you do that, you will seriously plateau and you won't improve anymore. Why? Because eventually you'll realize that if you go to failure again oh my gosh now i can do 11 I, I i or 12 or 13 or 15 but for months i've been doing 10 because i thought that 10 was my max yeah but you improved you got stronger so you got stronger and now your real limit is 15 
but you plateaued. You've been doing 10. So for months, you might not have been making any gains whatsoever. Because in a very short period of time, because of the law of diminishing returns, when you first began, you could only do 10. But within three weeks, you could actually do 15. But you didn't know you could do 15 because you've only been doing 10. And then you really do plateau. You're not pushing yourself hard enough. You always have to push yourself to the limit. The, the intensity increases right over time. And intensity is uh, the most important factor to achieve muscle growth. You need to stimulate the muscle. And you stimulate the muscle with intensity, not with volume. You can stimulate the muscle with volume as well, but the problem with that is that you end up with high volume training. And the older you get, you can maybe do that with, when you're young, but the older you get, high volume training, it becomes really problematic for the joints and the, uh, the, the nervous system and everything else. And it's so draining. You spend so much energy. It's much better to, and spreading that out so that, you know, every day or every other day you're, you're in the gym and you're lifting hard and everything else. It sucks. It sucks so much life and energy out of you. Um, that, uh, we've, switched over to uh, uh, high volume short duration training and it's 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 far more effective for us and it's far more protective of the joints and everything it's far more appropriate to us too that we were needing to write our book every day that's what was important but even that there was a limit to how much we could write every day Azazel says, failing without company on bench press is dangerous, though. Almost broke my ribs once when there was... Oh, you mean a spotter. Uh, look, we were just using an example. Okay, you can use a bench press machine, right? So if you... High intensity, if you're using body weight training, or you're using bands, or you're using a machine, high intensity is perfect, because you don't need a spotter in those cases right? Bench press with barbells, or sorry, uh, with a uh, an actual, um, with a bar. Yeah, that you don't want to do till failure without a spotter. But if you're using barbells, you're sorry, dumbbells, sorry, dumbbells. If you're doing uh, uh, bench pressing with uh, dumbbells, you can go to failure. No problem. Because you can, you can put them down, right? So, but with a, but you're right with a bar, with a barbell, uh, don't, there are certain lifts you don't want to be doing without a spotter, uh, to failure. But generally speaking, anything else, if you're using a machine or using bands or using body weight, because when you use body weight, you'd be doing push-ups. So obviously you can go to failure on push-ups because when you can't do another one, you're going to be on the ground already. <laughs> going to be an inch off the ground trying to push yourself up and you won't be able to do it uh pull-ups and everything else are fine as well so that would so with the one exception in this case of um 
of doing barbell bench presses, you don't want to take those to failure without a spotter. So that's that's a good bit of advice. But uh, but in everything else, you should be fine, right? And if you're using machines, uh, universal machines or Nautilus machines or whatever the case may be, you, you'll be fine. The point that we're making here is there's a time for everything under heaven. There's a time for exertion. There's a time for focused concentration and focused exertion and focused bursts of energy and activity. And that it's during these events, these occurrences, that we achieve stimulation for advancement, stimulation for growth. And we have words for that. In esotericism, we have another word. Yes, we talk meditation, tantra, other practices, right? Oh, wrong pen. But then there's something else. Uh, we have our tests, our trials, our ordeals. Okay. Um, when our innermost might be undergoing initiations in the supernal worlds. And those very much fall into this category of focused inefficiency. When we're being tested, because the intensity right comes in. When we have to exert ourselves, we have to do incredible super efforts to, for example, all of our willpower to be able to contain our anger, to be able to contain our emotions, to not give in to our lust, to not give in to our pride or our envy or any number of other egos which are being stimulated through the, through the course of the test or not lose hope or not... There's a million different tests and there's a million different ways to describe this, but you know that when emotions are high and what when there's a lot at stake there's a lot hanging on the balance there's a lot on the line and if you don't bring 100% to the table there's a good chance uh you're you're going to end up on the short end of the stick The point of the focused efficiency 
and the self-observation and self-remembering as the baseline is precisely so that we are we're not asleep we're we're at the ready we are we're always ready to face a test to respond to a test or a trial or an ordeal or whatever throws our, comes our way we are at the ready or or at the ready to respond to an impulse from our innermost being because we're observing ourselves and we're remembering ourselves so we are at the ready but we are at the ready in a way how does Samuel describes it we must be like a guard during a time of war with a clear and flexible mind but relaxed present and aware and conscious but relaxed and not overexerting ourselves why because we have to keep we have to keep something in reserve we have to be ready for when the enemy does attack that's when we need to be sharp but when the enemy is attacking you don't you don't hold back you don't say well well gee uh you know i better uh, be careful and i better not i better be careful and i better be really efficient with how i uh defend the wall here against the enemy this is this is stupid you need to go all out you need to put all of yourself all of your intensity all of your willpower all of your focus concentration on game day right during the competition during the test that's what you've been preparing for that's what you've been readying for and every time you go to the gym and you've been working out and building your muscles and building your strength or building your speed or building your skill or whatever it is you're doing for any endeavor you don't do it every day 8 hours a day and burn yourself out so then when the time the competition comes you're not ready for the competition so in light of this we can understand there's three conditions There's baseline, um, no, I guess, just for the sake of uh, keeping everything the same, let's, uh, let's say there's the baseline, right? That's our baseline heartbeat, okay? There's workouts, and then there's the intense combination, right? So there's baseline, there's uh, exercise, and then there's, let's call it competition.
So we want to be, we want to maintain, uh, well, if you want to be real, you know, uh, if you talk to the people at Glorian, they'll tell you that you should never, you should never abandon baseline. Even when you're sleeping, you should be awake. So when we say like, you know, stability, ability, rest, uh, as three states, as Azul, um, we're referring right now here to exertion. Stability, you always want to have stability. You never want to go into instability. And activity, you always want to have some activity. You're always going to be doing some activity. Even sleep is an activity. And what you do in your sleep is an activity. And if you take Lorianne at their word and you, you know, and you you follow their advice and uh, you follow the teachings of Samael, you know that even when you sleep, you should be in activity. But at the same time, rest is also an activity. So that's why we're saying that baseline, you never want to uh, necessarily lose your awareness. It's just, this is... A, a model of exertion, right? Rest is in here, right? This includes taking breaks. This is this is the more intense work that's uh, here and here, right? Th this is where the intensity gets much higher. This is the stuff that we only can do. Uh, this is what we have to manage. And this is how what we have to um, not allow ourselves to get out of control, not, our, not allow ourselves to become carried away with the exercises and with the competition, right? Because you can, even in the gym, right? In, in bodybuilding, there is something called uh, overtraining. You don't want to overtrain yourself for the reasons that we described, because it's unsustainable. You're going to crash or you're going to end up with injuries. And the same thing can happen when you're training your consciousness, when you're, when you're, uh, we're talking about the, uh, the metaphysical path. Benjamin says, I liked how Glorian explains meditation very well. Uh, I was listening while relaxing. Which uh, series was it, Benjamin? Because they have several. They have several uh, different lecture series. One was called Meditation Without Exertion. One's called Meditation Essentials. And we can't remember what the third one's called. But um, anyway. But yeah, Gl Gl Glorian is an excellent resource. And we highly, highly recommend that uh, you take advantage of every lecture that they that they have but particularly the stuff on meditation the practical practices so this brings us back to you know knowing when we need a break and when to take a rest and how and and whatnot right hopefully Uh, Benjamin says, I started from the top, 
by the book, first meditation to the rest. Okay. There's the reality that now again we can we have to speak. Uh, Oh, Stuart says, uh, authentic meditation is the, the name of the third course. Okay. If you are going to be doing an exercise every day, you have to know what your limits are. And we found that out the hard way when we first started meditating and mantra and everything else there's only so much energy we have and there's only so much focused concentration we have in a day and a lot of our focused concentration is spent on living our lives and going to work and making money and so on and so forth doing chores around the house and there's there's all sorts of other things that you know, we spend our, our focus and our concentration, our energy on. So the word to remember here is uh, rationing, allocating, managing. We want to observe ourselves and we, ne we need to be aware of our limits. and recognize that if we are following our intuition if we are following our being instinct and it's that's the place where we all want to get to is the ability to do that and we feel the impulse to do a certain work or a certain project when that impulse is there and present we can do it then we should do it but we have to develop the faculty of discernment and know when the impulse is from our innermost being And when it's our ego, because again, it's easier to speak in practical examples, a, a case study. So we've been writing this book and there were times when nothing came and I, I started getting antsy and I started getting anxious and like, but the clock is ticking. I have this deadline. I need to be working on the book. I need to be doing, you know, I need to be working on this book. But if nothing was coming, what was I going to do? Luckily, I know enough by now that 
I know better than to try to write if Atlas is not dictating. If my higher self is not dictating, I don't write. I treat myself like a stenographer in a courtroom. A stenographer sits in a courtroom. If there's no judge and there's no jury and there's no defendants, the stenographer will sit there and wait for everybody to show up. Not only that, they'll wait until the court, the judge says this court is now in session and hits the gavel and then they'll start typing. They'll type what people are saying. That's it. We have to cultivate our capacity to be in a place where if our being is taking a break, then that's a perfect excuse for us to take a break. Not to impose our need, our fear, our desire for control, or our discipline, or our whatever concepts we have of being a hard worker and putting in 150% and everything else. You know what? Let the people who do that in the world stay in the world. On the path, the path, the work. is otherworldly work. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. The work we are doing is in the world, but that work is not of this world. And because it's not of this world, the rules of mechanical nature do not apply. The traditions of mechanical nature, of culture, of society, that's defined by ego and mechanical nature, do not apply to work of the supernal worlds. And the, the, the clashes, the conflict that we were talking about uh, at the beginning, you know, the obsessive, the discipline, the self-flagellation, the pushing ourselves too hard and everything else, this is all stuff that applies in mechanical nature and in the world. Why? Because the struggle for survival works like that. If when push comes to shove, Mechanical nature is ruthless. Mechanical nature is ruthless. If you, it will not let up in certain circumstances. And if you let your guard down, mechanical nature will walk all over you. And this is why so many people who are living from that primal mechanical 
perspective are workaholics and work like dogs and work themselves to the bone and work themselves to death. They work themselves to an early grave. But the way the world is and the way the circumstances are, are there immigrants in a new country? It was a lot of them. They have to work like dogs just to be able to get by, just to be able to feed their kids. We're not saying that that working like that and working like a dog for years, if that's what you need to do to survive, we're not saying that that's inappropriate. Because that's that's how mechanical nature works. That's the law of mechanical nature. Yes, you have the diminishing returns and everything else, but the but you also have the fact that mechanical nature is ruthless. We are out here in the wilderness. The wilderness is a harsh and unforgiving place. It's unforgiving. But that is not appropriate to do this work. The work that we're talking about. And the reason why our baseline must always have some amount of awareness to it is precisely because mechanical nature is ruthless. And our egos are always conspiring and always looking for an opportunity to get the best of us. So we can never really completely let our guard down. Our rest breaks must be the intensity returning down to baseline. So we have to cultivate that baseline, that baseline awareness of mindfulness of self-observation and self-remembering so that that is always our default that's what we return to even when we sleep so that when we dream we can be aware that we're dreaming and awaken in those dreams so we can be aware of our dreams and there are exercises that we can do it's called dream yoga to be able to remain conscious even while we sleep and we can maintain that baseline 24 hours a day because the nature of that baseline of observing the world one eye in and one eye out and remembering our higher self, remembering our divine mother, it takes so little energy by, by comparison is that it is possible for us to maintain that. It's the super efforts that Samael Mayor talks about is doesn't refer to the energy or the intensity of us doing that. It's the consistency of us maintaining that baseline. You see, even though we liken this to the heartbeat and we have a, a, a resting heart rate, but our heart beats whether we want it to or not. We don't have to make our heart beat 
our heart beats for us because it's part of our it's part of mechanical nature it's part of our mechanical body our human machine but our consciousness our consciousness is not mechanical our consciousness is not going to remain conscious automatically because it's not mechanical it's not ruled by mechanical nature it's not governed by mechanical laws And because of our false self and our egos who are always clawing and trying to grab and get our consciousness and hypnotize us and mesmerize us and distract us and take our consciousness with them on a wild on a wild ride, we have to be present and aware and conscious and and fly above the weather, so to speak, if you want to use a uh, an airline analogy. If you fly at 10,000 feet, you got to fly through the clouds and through the storms. But if you can fly at 30,000 feet, you fly above the weather. And you can see all the clouds and storms beneath you, but you're above it all because you're conscious, you're aware. You're in that higher frequency, you're in that you're at that higher level. And you can see all of the egos, you can see all of the storms, you can see everything happening, but you're not getting you're not caught in the storms anymore. That's what takes the super efforts to get yourself above the weather and stay there at that cruising altitude. But once you're at that cruising altitude, and once you've practiced and learned how to remain consistent, you can remain there, and that will become your new baseline. You will always return there. But mechanical nature is ruthless and there's always going to be bolts of lightning shooting up and trying to, you know, and turbulence and all kinds of stuff, trying to get your airplane and drag it back down into the storm. So you have to remain, you have to be vigilant. That's where the super efforts come in. But it's not a super effort in terms of exertion of energy and intensity. No, no, no. Consistency. Consistency. Consistently being aware. Consistently being conscious. That's where the super efforts come in when it comes to that baseline aspect. And we have to maintain that even when we are taking a break, even when we are resting. We have to be aware and, and remain conscious. And because if we, if we don't, if we're not, then our egos can take advantage of that and walk all over us and perhaps get us into all kinds of trouble. And make us do things that, you know, we're going to regret later. Let's go back here. Um, Benjamin says, it's totally different from traditional. Oh, yeah. Uh, this was coming back to the uh, meditation courses on Glorianne. Uh, Benjamin says, it's totally different from traditional Buddhist meditation. Way more easier, but with difficult aspect nonetheless. Azazel says, yeah, we're about to move to another apartment while having work to do. So certain things must be put to rest. He says, so this is an important topic. You're about to move to another apartment while having work to do. So, so certain things must be put to rest. It's a bit 
bit vague, but we'll take your word for it, Azazel. But this is an important topic. And it's it's unfolding uh, in an unexpected way because we're talking more about the nature of the uh, the intermittent nature of the uh, the exertion of effort. But that baseline consistency needs to be there throughout. And that, so this is related to how we rest. And for many people, again, many people who are new to the path and many people who are not even on the path or just starting the path, that baseline is a tremendous amount of work. And they, and they cannot maintain that consistency because it requires too much energy. It requires too much exertion. When you first begin self-observation and self-remembering, it's it's it requires super efforts just to do that. It's a lot of intensity and a lot of energy just to be able to observe yourself. And you can't do it consistently. You fall off the wagon all the time. And maybe you still do. We still do. We still do. And given our particular nature, we still dream. We haven't mastered dream yoga. We are not able to uh, project in the astral plane every time we go to sleep. There are, so you are, your baseline is going to be different than everybody else's baseline. Everybody is different. Everybody has a different level of being. And your exercise and your intent, the intensity of the competition is going to be different. Because we're all configured in different ways. If you have any type of intuition or insight or clairvoyance, everyone has different kinds of clairvoyance. I can't see auras. I can't see auras. Can't see energy. There's lots of things like there's lots of clairvoyance that I not I don't have access to. But I'm a pretty good stenographer. So when Atlas wants me to write something, I have that ability to hear that and write that. And the clairvoyance that we have relates to Atsaluth, relates to archetypes and symbols and And the ability to feel and see the alm of life everywhere, for example. So, no, we can't see energy. And no, we can't read people's minds. And no, we're not very good at reading other people's emotions. But we can see archetypes in those people. We can spot them almost from a mile away. So, but when we began, we were just, we were in the dark, right? So everybody's going to be at a different level, no matter, they're all, and you're always going to be at a different level. You're going to be at your level, so that you're going to have your baseline. And you're going to have your limits. For us, we think we uh, expressed this to you before uh, talking about the book 
and uh, we could do maximum about four hours of writing a day. Now, if we're working on a video and doing stuff like, like that kind of stuff, we can do a little bit more. But when it comes to just all out writing, three to four hours a day is the most we could do. And interestingly, we were, again, because of deadlines, because of, you know, other situations and just the way I am, right? My, you know, living with, with, with the, uh, the fear and everything else, the anxiety and I was getting self-conscious about that. So I looked into it. I did some research and it turns out most writers will tell you that they can't do more than three or four hours of quality writing in a day. If they try to do more, it's going to be garbage. It's going to be crap, or they're just going to end up with writer's block. The ebb and flow, the in-breath and out-breath is a universal archetype. And as above, so below. There's an ebb and flow to everything. Tides rise and tides fall. Water ripples across as on the pond as ripples or on the way on the ocean as waves and it's the energy and frequency that that right that it's like that cosine wave everything's a wave And it's important for us to be aware of that and honor that and respect that. Now, is it always going to be uniform like this? There's going to be times when we're going to be, you know, it's going to look something. It's not always going to be regular like that. Sometimes it's going to be big, right? And then, and then, right? It's going to be different all the time under different circumstances. Again, like our heartbeat analogy. I think the heartbeat analogy is good just from that because you can visualize it, but you can feel it. You can experience it. You can understand it. You know what we're talking about. From resting to walking to running to sprinting. You also know that your heartbeat goes up and down uh, like crazy, uh, maybe just before you step out on stage to give a public speech, do some public speaking or give a presentation or whatever. If you have any kind of stage fright, you know that your heart going to be in your throat so there's there's all different forms of intensity and exertion of energy and there's one way we can describe all of that by the way and it's stress that's relates to heartbeat now right on the level of mechanical nature 
But stress has its antithesis in the supernal worlds, which is intensity, effort. Effort, intensity, is not stress. Stress is how mechanical nature expresses intensity. But divine nature expresses intensity as intensity. It is what it is. But mechanical nature expresses intensity as resistance because of the law of conservation of energy, because of inertia, the law of inertia, the well, there's all sorts of examples of um, resistance, resistance to change, resistance, but again, inertia and the laws of motion, motion, resistance to alter one's course. Things like to keep on doing what they're already doing, even if they're not doing anything. That's the law of inertia. And it's a physical law. It's a law of physical reality. In uh, expressed another way, things in motion tend to stay in motion and things at rest tend to stay at rest. Because in mechanical nature, phenomena are resistant to change. Mechanical nature fights change. Whereas divine nature embraces change, embraces flow, embraces movement. Nothing in mechanical nature is ever truly still, even in meditation. It is the so it is the mind that wants to be, that needs to be um, quieted, that doesn't want to go quiet because it's always racing and moving, so things in motion wants to stay and keep in motion, and it resists becoming still. But if we accomplish that, and that mind becomes like a, a, a calm lake, like a mirror that can reflect the heavens, then all of a sudden we can see the movement and the motion and the flow of the supernal worlds. We were talking earlier about, uh, oh, I should, let's... Uh, as Azel says, uh, knowing archetypes is pretty close to reading minds. Uh, no, because I don't know people's thoughts. I can't, I don't, I don't read people's thoughts. No, knowing archetypes is just seeing in them an archetype being played out. It's like when you go to the theater or a movie, and you can very quickly discern, okay, that's the villain, that's the hero, or that's this, that that's the rogue, that's the this, that's the love interest, whatever. 
it doesn't doesn't mean you know what they're going to say. It doesn't mean you know what they're thinking. It doesn't mean you know what they're going to do. You just have insight into the uh, archetype of the character that's being played out. It's the whole reason why we have so many different stories is because we want to see these archetypes see all the different ways that they can play out. That's why the universe exists, so that the absolute itself can witness all the different ways that these archetypes can play themselves out in the universe. If God already knew how everybody was going to behave and what they were all thinking at all times, then there wouldn't be much point to it. So we see, we, we know where you're coming from, but you see, you can't, it, most people are completely oblivious to archetypes. Most people don't know the archetypes. So archetypes are not in the mind. So archetypes and reading minds is two separate, two, two separate things. For me to be able to see archetypes in someone, it's not related to their mind. Um, yeah, I just, I, I absolutely can't read minds. So <laughs> I just, uh, sometimes I know what people are going to be, say before they say, but that's, that's a different capacity. That's, that's, um, that's, uh, an intuitive capacity related to foresight. It's not necessarily mind reading. Mind you, we're not an expert on mind reading. So what do we know about mind reading? Maybe we are reading minds. We just don't know it. I don't know. Where were we? Uh, the work requires a lot of energy. It requires a lot of effort. And... Even though we were only doing three or four hours a day, we were doing three or four hours a day pretty steadily for, we'd have to say, you know, a good year. And not only that, a lot of the content that we were drawing on was pulled from our blog, which we had accumulated those articles uh, over, over a span of 10 years. So when we completed the book this week, even though it would not be fair to say that it was our full-time job, because if you, if you, if you cut it up in hours, if, if, if we had logged hours every day and said, this is how long we were working on the book, it would not seem like a full-time job. It would seem like more like a part-time job. But for us, it is our full-time job because it is our only job. Because when you combine that with the work that we were doing on uh, social media, with uh, making YouTube videos, doing the counseling that we do, doing these live streams that we were doing, when you add it all up, it, it's, it is a full-time job. And... Uh, 
And so when we handed in the manuscript on Thursday, uh, basically Atlas decided to go on holiday. And we took advantage of, you know, took advantage of the opportunity Thursday afternoon after I submitted, I went, went running and, um, uh, yesterday cleaned the house and, you know, watched some movies and <laughs> plus the, plus, you know, last week was the, uh, this, this crazy mercury retrograde stuff. So we were already winding down, being forced to wind down because of that. So in the end, you got to follow your heart. You got to listen to your body. You got to watch your energy levels, all of that stuff. But most importantly, when your higher self says it's time to work, work. If you're not getting any messages from your higher self, if you if you're used to getting messages from your higher self, you you can normally hear intuition. You normally know what you need to do when you need to do it, and then you just get dead air. You just get silence. Just relax. Take it easy. Go back to baseline. Just wait. That doesn't mean that you can't, you know, try meditating or whatever here and there. Just just just. But take it easy. And if you've been exerting yourself or overexerting yourself, take a break. Try to feel the ebb and flow and try to feel the intensity and relaxation of intensity and, and go with it. Let yourself go with that. Go with the flow. We've talked about flow in the past. It's important. Because it's during those down times, during those rest times, that you are recharging and preparing yourself for the next burst of exertion, the next burst of intensity, which can be coming at any moment. We don't know when the next uh, when we are going to be confronted with the next test or trial or ordeal and what it's going to be. So the most important aspect to all of this is to relax and try to stay relaxed. Even when the intensity comes, even when the tests come, even during your exercises, Meditation, you have to be relaxed. There's, we were talking earlier about having that clenched fist and that tight grip. Have a, have a loose grip. Relax into all of this. Relax into the work. If you feel yourself tensing up, if you feel yourself getting stressed, you've, you're not doing the work. You're not on the path. You're now in resistance. You're, you're, you're falling back into mechanical nature and the way, and the way people, you know, do work or 
how they understand work, what work is. Work is something that they don't want to do. They do it begrudgingly because they have to, but they would they would prefer not to. Everything that we do on the path, we need to find a way to do it and a space to do it so that's a joy. Now our ego, our laziness, our especially is going to be resistant to that, is going to try to convince us not to do it. And so if we have exercised or do exercise, or we have you we have used discipline in the past, but now you don't have to do discipline because to exercise is a joy. You want to exercise in a way that is is fun and enjoyable for you. It has to be challenging to stimulate your body to remain healthy or to grow or to improve, but it has to be enjoyable and stimulating. So the work we do on the path should be that. And if it's coming from our heart, it's coming from our higher self, it will be that. So honor that. Don't allow, there's, there's two sides, there's two extremes. Don't allow yourself to make your divine work into some ego-driven mechanical activity that you have to get done because of fear, because of anxiety, because of discipline, and you're going to discipline yourself into doing it. But on the other hand, don't just be laxy daisy about it. Oh, you know, I got plenty of time. And oh, well, you know, I had, um, you know, it'll take care of itself. Uh, and then your egos will walk all over you because procrastination and laziness and all these things, because the ego is ruthless. And if we let down our guard, the ego will move, the egos will move in. Okay. We have to be like a garden time of war. Master Samuel says we, the, our baseline is we have to remain in self-observation, self-awareness, and witness both of these extremes happening within us. As, as the ego tries to get its grip on us and our life and our life's work and our exercises, the path. And either it's going to turn it into an obsession and a compulsion for us, or it's going to... It's going to make us not want to do it out of laziness, out of, you know, whatever, right? Or it's going to try to twist it and corrupt it in some way. There's so many different ways. And if we are, if we're overworking ourselves or we're underworking ourselves, that's when the ego comes in because if we're overworking ourselves. We're weak. We're low on energy. We're, we're, we're just ripe for the plucking. And if we're underexerting ourselves then laziness and that sloth that comes with laziness and that that excess energy is there and the egos are attracted to excess energy they'll take advantage of that that surplus of energy and we're going to find we have all this excess energy that we were using on the work but now we're not doing that project now we have this excess energy so what's going to happen 
all these temptations come, all these egos come to come in and, and burn off that energy and doing some other thing that may not necessarily be good for us. <clears throat> Ultimately, we have to remember that that's why we have two pillars behind us, right? Um, the pillars of Jacqueline and Boaz, uh, severity and mercy. And then the space between them. That's really what we're looking at here. That's what we're looking at here. The arch is created, right, in the combination of these two pillars. This is strength. This is the, the arch. And you know that the arch is related to the arc. And the middle here is the work. So there's a balance. So this is where that equilibrium that uh, Stuart mentioned, I think it was Stuart mentioned earlier, the equilibrium. Uh, but it's not always going to, It's the, there's always going to be an equilibrium there, but uh, this is the equilibrium that's always there. It's severity and mercy. Now, but again, that's if, we remain on the path. If we allow ourselves to fall into mechanical nature, that's when things can go haywire. And be um, because remember, mechanical nature is also interested in efficiency. And mechanical nature is also balanced in its own way. But mechanical nature will come up with some very, very, very strange ideas. Our, our ruthless egos will trick us and rationalize all sorts of bizarre behaviors. And will have us in a very unbalanced way, like we were talking earlier, either too much, of, too much discipline and effort and overexertion or too little, and we fall into laziness and 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 so on uh, uh neglect and so on 
Benjamin says, the irony is that we tell ourselves to relax. We are not in a relaxed state. The irony is that when we tell ourselves to relax, we are not in a relaxed state. If you need to tell yourself to relax, you're not in a relaxed state. There's no reason to tell yourself to relax if you're already relaxed. But if you get stressed out about relaxing, there's where the real irony is. Oh, I have to relax. I have to relax. Okay, relax, 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 relax. That's the opposite of being relaxed. So that's like when you lie down and meditate and you're like, oh my God, my mind is so busy. My mind is so busy. Shut up, 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 shut up. And the more you try to, even the more you try to tell it to shut up, the more it's, the, more, the busier and crazier it's going to get. Again, it's the it's the too too strong a grip, right? It's the Chinese finger puzzle. The harder you pull, the more entrapped you become. Stuart says, in the school of life, this time with you, all is a joy and fast becoming a favorite lesson of the week. <laughs> Thank you for all your contributions. You're welcome, Stuart. Benjamin says, just like Bruce Lee said, be water, my friend, be water, right? That's the flow state. Yeah, well, what did he, what else did he say, right? Uh, he said, you pour water into a cup, the water becomes the cup. You pour it into a teapot, it becomes a teapot. And he says, water can flow or water can crash. Gee, what does that sound like? Okay. If you, just for a moment, we had heartbeats here, right? Okay. But um, what if we uh, take some blue and we draw this, okay? And uh, and we draw uh, this. And then here, we draw this. Okay. Here we have water flow. Here we have water crash. And here, in the exercises we do, in the practice of the work, we have water working. Okay. We have... We have uh, water in a cup. We have water in a teapot, right? Uh, we, making tea, for example. So for me, it was writing a book, right? That's part of my work, part of my life's work. It's practical. So this is the what we would say: exercise, working, cup. Uh, uh, we call it practice because it's it's helping us be practical. Again. To use the arc and arch analogy, a pillar is not very useful by itself. But you put two pillars together and you put an arch between them. Now you have a doorway, you have a portal, you have something that can 
hold up an entire building. It can hold up a ceiling. You have the vaulted cathedral, uh, the, the vaulted ceilings of a cathedral. Why? Because you had these pillars and you connected them with an arch. That's what does the work. It's the combination of uh, uh, severity and mercy. It's the relationship between these three conditions. And yeah, Bruce Lee says water can flow or water can crash. But he also says water can become a, uh, a cup. It can become a teapot. Be water. It's interesting because you could also talk about water being a, uh, uh, a liquid, a solid, or a gas. But frankly, there's a fourth state of water, a, a structured plasma state of water, which is what it really needs to be uh, inside us in order for it to give life. So that's not the best analogy. But in any case, but in terms of the, the way water flows, right? What we don't want to have happen, we don't want the water to die. We don't want the water to become stagnant and putrid for lack of use, for lack of... So we never want to allow the water to, uh, to fall asleep, to become stagnant, because stagnant water becomes putrid and algae-infested. And the putrefaction of water is like the putrefaction of our consciousness by the by the uh, the ego, by mechanical nature, by the bacteria and the algae. Stewart says relaxation has been has been a night. Our subject for me, and this tonight has been a revelation. Oh, relaxation has been a nightmare subject for me. And this tonight has been a revelation. Uh, trust us that relaxation for us was such an uphill battle our entire life. Uh, well, look, epilepsy. <laughs> it's like, it's a, it's an, you know, you know, we don't even have to say any more than that. Uh, plus, if you knew our family, uh, and everybody in this family was a worrywart and constantly high strung and everything. So for us, relaxation is is uh, it's was key, but it was very, very, very hard to be able to get to where we are at. And Stuart also says, severity and mercy, healthy S and M. <laughs> no, epilepsy is not relaxing. No, no, it's, uh... so yes, it's, Relaxation was 
and in some cases continues to be. You know, it's not, uh, it's something that, that now it's part of our baseline, right? It's part, it's more, we're much more in the flow and everything else and, you know, but we will say this, we never once in our life smoked marijuana or uh, took anything else really to 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 help us get into some you know groovy you know flow state man like so can we say that we know what it's like for people who are on marijuana certainly not for certain but what we can say is where we are at is far superior it's far superior because we can be mellow and relaxed and calm and cool and go with it and ah oh, yeah it's it's cool man like it's it's okay it's groovy yeah we can be there we can put ourselves in that but without the munchies or without anything else the stuff that people with marijuana suffer from and not only that we can snap out of it in an instant if we have to be sharp again right you can't do that on a substance. You can't just snap back to normal on a substance. You can't it just it just doesn't work that way. You're under the influence. So for us, we can be that flowing water, but then all of a sudden, somebody can drop a 16 ton weight into the pond, and now we crash because that's you know, and we can immediately change like that but water that's under the influence you know for us we see as uh, we see marijuana and and other substances because they're a part of mechanical nature we see the consciousness becoming stagnant at that point it seems calm it seems relaxed okay because it's it's a fetid pool it's 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 not it doesn't have it doesn't have true flow state this the substances are making you feel that in order to take advantage of you but anyway uh benjamin says in today's apocalyptic times it's our job to build our ark and that ark is the mental and spiritual strength that will help us cope with all the stresses in your drawing, the arc is supported by a pair of opposites. That is the analogy of the uh, pair of animals in Noah's Ark story. Thank you. No, thank you, Benjamin. You always have a way of uh, of bringing biblical story and in, into our uh, discussions and giving them a uh, a different perspective and a different kind of clarity. We have uh, shown you this. You know what? We've shown you this before. We're going to show it again. Where is it now? Uh, ta -ta 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 -ta. Let's see. Whenever we do this, you get to see uh, an insight into how uh, messily and unorganized our uh, our computer is. Oh, you know what? We're going to try something. Here, here. We're going to try something. Full screen snip. Okay. 
Now we come over here. All right. I'm going to try. Uh, whoops. Of course, this is. Okay. Is that. Uh... Bear with us while we try to get the th bloody thing on screen. Uh, it's okay. Close enough. Okay. So we've shown you this before. Let's make ourselves smaller so you can see it better. Okay, and Benjamin, we're gonna take your. Uh... So we've shown you this before. This this uh, uh, Larson cartoon, Far Side cartoon. But here we see now. This is this is what's going to be interesting. Uh, okay. Right. Can we do that? Oh, there we go. Okay, so there's the arch. And as you can see, uh, the Ark of the Covenant and Noah's Ark are the two arcs of the Bible. And the arch and the ark are related. This is the Ark the Triumph. Okay, the Arch of Triumph is the upper trinity of uh, Keter, Chokmah, and Binah. These are the two cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, then, the Ark, is this square. This, uh, the square. Binah, sorry, Chokmah, Binah, Kesed, and Geburah. Right, so the Atman, that's the uh, the 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 higher self in Kased, the consciousness in Gebura, the Buddhic body, and then plus the upper trinity of the logos. This is the Christ. Keter Hokma Binal. Technically, the Christ is Hokma, but let's just call it the logos. Okay, uh, everything emanates from Keter. So there's the cherubim, right? The uh, severity and mercy are the two angels, the two cherubim that are touching their wings, creating this uh, upper trinity. So, but then we have this square, and in the middle of this square we have daat, which is gnosis. Okay, these are uh, the teachings, right? Otherwise known as the law, the Ten Commandments. That's what goes inside of an ark. But there's another thing that goes inside of an ark. The other thing that goes inside of the ark, that's represented by the ark of Noah. Now, the ark of Noah, there's a vessel, right? There's a square, there's a square block, right? On Noah's ark. That's right here. That's Binah, Hokmah, Binah, Chesed, and Geburah. The ark hasn't changed, but Noah's ark has a, there's a vessel. That vessel is Chesed, Geburah, and Tipareth. That's this inverted triangle. And that inverted triangle has a name. We call it the monad. And what is the monad? That is our divine vessel. And Da'at, Gnosis, is what's inside 
of that vessel that's inside of the ark. This is actually pretty handy, right? Because we can we can uh, we can use this to uh, you know draw on other things, and we can uh, we can color uh, Noah's beard and mustache. <laughs> we can yeah, we can turn we can turn our uh, memes into a coloring book. Here, let's uh, let's uh, let's color the elephants. Okay, I'm being silly now, uh, but we got on the topic of uh, arcs. And arches. This is the hidden Kabbalistic meaning of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of Noah, and the Ark the Ark de Triomphe, the triumphant arch. It's it's all here, and there it is in the tree of life. So we got into this because of uh no, where's our whiteboard? There's our whiteboard. Yeah. Because of this. And Benjamin saying the severity and mercy. Yeah, the masculine and feminine. Because that's Jacqueline and Boaz is also masculine and feminine. And so the two animals, the pairs of animals, are the Right, the animal husbandry. Each one of these, uh, each one of these pairs of animals. Like uh, which female and male, right? Two by two. Together. Male and female, severity and mercy. The two carabim. And then the middle you have, so you have the law. And practically speaking, and this is very much a topic of our book, these animals, two by two, male and female, represent what? Their seeds. Seeds for what? For the, for the new world, for the next humanity. They are going to husband, they're going to be responsible for the husbandry of the new world, for the new, for the new race. But you put away the best seeds in an ark. And that's a very practical application that's, that's, that's very close to the uh, story of Noah and the Epic of Gil Gilgamesh. It's... Um, now, it's not animals two by two. It's the best seeds from this humanity. Two by two. Stuart says, I can concur. I can concur. Relaxation in natural breath is far superior to substance induced states. And as Azza says, you could do a drawing book for children as well. Uh, 
Could I? I don't think I could do. I I don't think I could do a uh, uh, that. You know what though? I want I want to do a children's book, uh, and I already have Ratatoskr in the seed. I there's a friend of mine that I've been you know I've been coaxing him, uh, and he said that he'd be willing to do it, but first he has to get his life in order. So, um, I've asked him to to uh, illustrate. Ratatoskr and the Seed, and make Ratatoskr and, and the Seed a children's book. I don't know about a coloring book, but uh, as Azazel says, paint the attire of this happy little new age guru in the appropriate colors. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you will get a kick out of. It's funny you mentioned that because you will get a kick out of, oh, you know what? Let's let's have some fun. Um, remember, we're supposed to be taking a break today. <laughs> uh, where is it? Okay. Have we shown you this yet? Have we shown you this? This is from the this is from the book. We 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 redid one of our memes about the new age. So Look, look where the new age, uh, look at the colors we chose for the new age guru. <laughs> you know, the, the, the whole book is about essentially about beliefs, right? And, 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 uh, and so this is, this is, we had this, we had done this meme before we just redid it now for the book. Uh, and, um, so there's the colors of the guru, the new age guru. If you're interested, uh, we can show you some of the other visual aids that uh, some of these you some of these are are, are new-ish. Oh, that's a. Uh, why is that such terrible quality? Gosh. Oh, that's because I blew it up. That's why. So um, this is showing the... Uh, remember we were talking about equilibrium? The alm of life is always in equilibrium, just like the Tao. If you have an upward spiral of evolution, there must be a corresponding downward spiral. And so as mechanical nature is in decline, so divine nature can be, in, can be uh, inclining. So if you have hypnosis and ignorance are imploding, you're reducing on you're reducing unconsciousness and there's an explosion of ego death you're exploding egos then there's a corresponding expansion in consciousness and a synthesis of gnosis this is what's present in the dao that's why each side of the dao each aspect of the dao contains the other because, of course, 
the other way to show this in the alm of life is evolution versus devolution so in evolution as from being we have the fall into ego and an explode an ego causes uh, an explosion of ego causes an explosion of hypnosis and ignorance and that causes an implosion for us to, to to not being so from a state of not being we do the work of ego death to have an expansion of consciousness and gnosis and that synthesizes gnosis and being so this is the evolution and devolution as opposites as um and then this is showing the 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 actual forces of evolution and devolution as complementary so it's a multi-dimensional phenomenon it's not it's not a duality the alm of life is not a duality the tao is not a duality because this is right this is all like because this is the spiral right going around and around you know we're expanding or we can contract if we go in the different the opposite direction but it's not a duality evolution and devolution are not they are a duality but they're not because here they're working in tandem together for evolution and here they're showing as there it's a duality of opposites of evolution versus devolution but in each in both evolution there's a devolution and in devolution there's an evolution <laughs> all is one as azil says all is one is there anything else uh of any particular interest i think most of these you've probably already seen anyway uh just we we had to change colors because some of them are memes that are uh, background colors are black we just made them white so they they uh work better in print and i guess did we show you guys the cover show you guys the cover there's the front cover and back cover so anyway we'll be uh you'll be seeing more of this soon and hopefully not not to a nauseating level but we will have to we will have to promote this thing so hopefully uh you guys will not be nauseated by it uh this is going to be our full-time job for the next six to twelve months at least it's going to be promoting uh the, our work getting it in front of those people who really need to read it really or listen to it because uh this week we're going to be talking to our publishers about making an audiobook because the final manuscript was 532 pages and uh we spoke to somebody at the epoch times and they said well he said he said that book he said your book sounds like it's right up our readers alley but you have to understand if it's 530 pages uh you're gonna you're gonna need an audiobook because most people won't re won't dedicate themselves to reading a 500 page book 
but they will listen to one, right? At the gym, in the car, on their way to work, or on the train, on, the, on their way to work. So uh, we're taking that advice to heart, and uh, we're probably going to be recording the book ourselves. I think it's, it's much better when the author reads the book. I think it's, it, it lends more of a personal touch because also uh, we know the material. We rewrote it. So we know where the emphasis needs to go and we can pour all of our uh, love and care and concern for the reader into, uh, into that. Uh, Stuart asks, what does 530 pages translate to in listening hours? Hang on a second. Six, about... It's two minutes a page, so that's what uh, one thousand sixty minutes. What's one thousand sixty minutes divided by? Um, just not that good with the math. So, what's one thousand sixty divided by sixty? Seventeen hours, according if 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 our if our calculations are correct, then it's two minutes a page. It'll be uh, 17, 18 hours. So, but that's, if it's 18 hours and the book is uh, divided into three parts. So it's roughly six hours for each part. I think that's fairly reasonable. It's no Bible. It's still not The Secret Doctrine by Blavatsky. Like B- Blavatsky's book is what a thousand pages. It's it's and it's still not as long as uh, as uh, uh, Beelzebub's Tales to his you know the Beelzebub's um, Tales to his grandson, which is one of Gurdjieff's books. So it's uh, we think it's we think it's fairly reasonable, but we you know we'll find out. We'll find out if other people think it's reasonable. Trevor Barzi says, that's really cool. Uh, we assume you were referring to the book cover. Benjamin says, as in the yin-yang symbol, there is darkness on the light and side and vice versa. That's that's correct. That's the point that we were that we were making. Is that there's no that the illusion of duality is that it's just that it's it's kind of an illusion. The whole phenomena of uh, mechanical nature versus divine nature is that uh, the universe is trying to know itself. So what is expressed mechanically in mechanicity, you have to recognize that, well, that's the whole phenomenon of the uh, the aeons and the archons. They have, they have similar natures, but, but it's how those natures are expressed. And we'll, we, you know what, maybe we'll, we'll get into that in more detail in a, in another, uh, in a future live stream, because it's, it is very interesting. And, 
and in writing this book, we became much more cognizant of their uh, of the nature of each, because we were we were talking about divine and mechanical nature, especially in the uh, the chapter on on artificial intelligence. Uh, Trevor says, "Yep, okay." So he was referring to the cover, and uh, Stuart says, "Thank you." I was curious, as I would read faster than it would be narrated. That said, this sort of content I find to be stop-start as I want time to mull things over. I do think it's right and proper for you to be the narrator as author. I wish you all the best with it and uh, looking forward to reading it. Well, thank you, Stuart. Uh, we hope you get lots out of it. We hope lots of people get lots out of it. And uh, it would be nice, it would be very nice if... Uh, even though we obviously did not write it for financial gain or for financial reasons, it would be nice if, uh, in addition to getting in front of the people that it needs to be in front of, uh, it would be nice if, if, if we sold the number of copies that, that we need to sell in order to be able to, to, for it to constitute, uh, a successful, investment of our time from a from a worldly perspective like i.e that we can be considered a full-time writer in other words that that we can actually demonstrate that that uh, us writing books of this nature is a viable proposition uh from a worldly perspective like that again that was the last thing on our mind when we were writing it but it would be a wonderful, lovely bonus that would enable us to, and especially it would be a wonderful, uh, it would just be a wonderful thing for our elderly father to be able to relax and know that we can make a go of it and that we can survive and that we, we, can, we can be successful from a worldly perspective doing this work because that's been the number one bone of contention and and uh and cause of distress for him is that um he's he recognizes that this is something we have to do and that there's we're not going to stray from the path we're not going to stray from our course of our life's work he's accepted that but it still really pains him that we haven't we haven't been able to demonstrate that we can make a living uh doing our life's work and so so if there is one thing that if there's one um if you might say one selfish thing about this work that we're still harboring and we're still carrying as a as a would be nice to have it would be that just for the sake of our father and just for the sake of the rest of our family and our friends, all those who care about us, who um, would like to see us, you know, be successful, be successful in a in a complete way, in an all all around way. Um, and it would be from from my perspective, right, from a personal individual perspective. Uh, you know, I have to admit, it would be nice, right? It would be nice to be able to afford to have a car. Right? It would be nice to be able to, to 
you know, uh, be a part of society and, and be able to, to, you know, uh, a little bit more. It would be nice to be able to afford to jump on a plane and to go do some speaking tours or to hire some help to, to do the many things that we have to do. Cause right now we're doing everything by ourselves. Um, it would be nice to be able to demonstrate uh, some success because this world only understands one kind of success. And, um, and it would be nice to be able to have a vehicle or something where we could start going around, touring around to give talks, live presentations and so on, because that's really our element. That's really where we shine is to be in front of a group of people. We don't know how well it comes across on this live stream because we're sitting down in front of a camera and we don't have a physical audience here. We don't, it's, we're not on, we're not on a stage, right? It's really when we're on a stage is when, as all of this goes to a completely different level. And we're just looking forward to, we're hoping that this, this effort, this super effort that we've made uh, for humanity is going to afford us an opportunity to uh, get in front of the people that that we need to be in front of, and um, and ultimately to attract the uh, financial support and resources that we need to be able to create the Atlas Centers, um, because that is the arc, that is the arc, and all of that is detailed out in the book. So we don't want to get too much carried away with it right now. Uh, Benjamin says, congratulations on the completion of the book. I was wondering, where can we order it? Um, you will be able to order it from Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, and a number of different places. All of that information is going to be forthcoming as soon as I have it. And as soon as, and you, and again, I'm hoping you will also be able to get it on Audible. But again, all of that information will be forthcoming, and we will get it to you just as soon as it's available. So uh, make no concern about that. The other thing is you will be able to get signed copies of the book at atlasalex.com. And there will be a limited number of signed copies available. And they will be, we'll be charging more money for those uh, plus shipping. But that's because it, they're going to be a limited number. And we're hoping that um, by doing that and making a special version that's that's personalized or signed or however you want it um with by making a little bit of extra money on let's say 100 copies or 200 copies or something uh that will with that we'll be able to recoup our publishing costs at least but anyway all that all those details are forthcoming trevor says i need to absorb different aspects of a book when i read versus when i listen so both are great ideas, I think. Um, the challenge to the audiobook is going to be that, uh, well, you know what? Why don't we show you? Why don't we show you? Let's uh, let's let's give you some some. Uh, let me take this off the screen. So, what you're looking at here is the Word document, and. Um, these are the contents by chapter, right? These are the chapters. They have part one, there's part one, right? Part two, part three, 
Uh, I didn't want to highlight that. Oh, anyway, that's that's where it's going to highlight that. Um, let me um, there. I'll make it bigger. These are the figures, right? I've got uh, twenty-seven diagrams uh, in the book, and the next part is images, right? I got eleven images. But then we have uh, the, uh, 39 videos, almost 40 videos. And in addition, we have uh, 10 links. So the audiobook, <laughs> okay, can cover this all right. The audiobook can cover the, the contents. Okay, the 500 and, uh, oh, I guess technically, if you want to be, it's the, uh, it's 526 pages, it's five, or 525 pages is, uh, um, is the actual length. It's only 530 something if you count the, uh, the extended, uh, uh, table of contents, which is at the end. So, all of this, is all visual, okay? Um, I don't know how I handle that in an audible audio format, right? I can't, I can't do that. I can't read the links because like the links are like YouTube links and stuff. So uh, sure, someone can listen to the book, but they're gonna be, there's gonna be a lot that's left on the table. and. The way these are working is I show I'll show you this. Um, this is how I put in the links and uh, all the videos and stuff. So even if someone's reading on their Kindle, all they got to do is scan the QR code with their phone, or if they're reading it on their tablet, all they have to do is click the link. So the the hyperlink is there. They can uh, click the hyperlink, or they can scan the QR code. And um, right, so it's a way for us to make our book multimedia and make it more uh, relevant in uh, today's age. Because people are saying, "Well, why would you write a book? Like a book is so archaic and all this kind of stuff." Well, uh, our book is going to be alive, um, so. We have all that content, uh, and we have all this extra content. So, really, in terms of reading the book, um, with with all the the uh, the diagrams and um, and and everything else, it's a um, well, it is what it is. Like. <clears throat> Uh, ta -ta 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 -ta. where are we? Where are we? Okay. As Azel says to have a roof over your head and stuff. Yeah. 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 It would be nice. You know, it would be nice. Um, well, I have a roof over my head. That's not an issue, but I'll tell you what, it, what is an issue is that, uh, this roof over my head isn't mine. It's my father's. Uh, but it's, it will be left to me. It will be left to me and my brother. 
problem is, is that I don't have a way of buying out my brother. And even if I did, I don't have a way of being able to carry this, this house, just the taxes and the upkeep and the, um, the, the utilities. And even if I were to rent it out, I couldn't make enough with the rent and everything to cover all the expenses plus live on. Right. So, so, um, and it's a promise that my father made to my mother before she died that, that we wouldn't sell the house after she died. And that after my father dies, my, my father basically wants my brother and I to honor that promise. Um, but if, but I'm fairly certain that my brother will want to sell the house or rent it out or what, you know what I mean? So the problem is, is that if I can't buy my brother's half out, or if I can't carry the house by myself and live in it, um, I think he'd be okay as long as I can carry all the expenses. He's not losing anything by he's, he's still own half the house. Right. So, um, But that's the issue is that when you say to have a roof over my head, well, I have it until my father is alive, but after he's gone, I'm, I might lose this roof over my head and I want to honor the agreement that we had. I want to honor the promise that we made to my, to my mother and to my father. It's just, I'm just that way. If I make an agreement or if I make a promise, I want to honor that. I want to try to respect that. So it would be nice to be able to do that. If not, if I can't, if I can't afford to, then I will have no choice. I'll have to move out. My brother will take over the house. He'll probably sell it. And I, I'll get half the proceeds from the house, but the house will be gone. I will have broken my promise. So will my brother, but that's the only solution that we'll be able to have. If I don't have another living, the only living I can have is the inheritance I get from my father. And most of that inherent, inherent inheritance will be the value of the house. I don't want to put my brother or my father or anybody in that position if I can avoid it. Now that's maybe too much information for you guys, but hey, we're st we might not be of the world, but we're still in the world and we do have such concerns as Azazel is rightly pointing out here. Stuart says, I'll be paying full retail price and uh, promoting this. Our children need this in the world. Thanks uh, again for doing what you do. Uh, blessings be with you and uh, all you want to achieve. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you for those kind words. Uh, Benjamin says, writing a book is a good start towards self-mastery. As Francis Bacon said, reading maketh a full man, conference a ready man, and writing an exact man. Oh, wow. That's, a, that's an excellent quote. I've never heard that. I've never heard that. And Francis Bacon is Count St. Germain and, uh, and Shakespeare. So <laughs> Benjamin says, yay. Uh, same on completion of the book. Uh, Benjamin says, congrats. And Benjamin says, reading gives one a better experience. Oh, and I already have a Kindle. I'll definitely be looking to purchase it. Uh, Azazel says, yeah, same reason we're moving. Oh, right. This apartment is too expensive in its upkeep. Yeah. Yeah, no, I hear you. It's uh when that's well, especially now with the inflation and everything and the uncertain economic times, it's it's uh gives all of us a moment to pause. So 
yes, it's it's important to know when to take a break, but it's also important to know when when break time is over and when we have to get back to work. And that for me is going to be this week. <laughs> uh, Benjamin says uh, the book's contents look very impressive, and I look forward to getting it and sharing it with family and friends. So thank you, Benjamin. I look forward to be able to uh, hear all of your feedback and. And again, we'll reiterate this once the book is out. But if you can buy the book from Amazon and uh, leave a review, that will be uh, fantastic. However, there's a catch. There's a caveat. If you buy the book on Kindle or Audible, you have to finish reading the book before you can leave a review. Because if you if you buy it on Kindle and you say, oh, I'm going to help, I'm going to help Attila out and I'm going to write this fantastic review even without, without reading it. Amazon, Amazon keeps track of what percentage of the book that you've read. So unless you've actually read all 500 pages of the book or a minimum percentage, it's like 80 or 90%, you have to actually click through on the pages on your Kindle you haven't done that and go and leave a review amazon will not count your review it will it will treat your review as a fake review as a review made by bots or ai or whatever because they don't want falsified reviews and you you can buy reviews there are places that that offer to to sell you reviews on your book and I know that these people, they're not reading your book. You can buy 200 reviews, right? Uh, Stuart asks, uh, I don't have a Kindle. Can I read it via my laptop? You can get the, um, I think you can get the Kindle app for, uh, you can get Kindle app for Android and Apple. Uh, I don't know if Kindle has an app for, um, for Windows. I can look into that. Uh, I can look into that for you if you want. Uh, but it's the same deal with the Kindle app. It's exactly the same software as the uh, as the physical Kindle. So you have to um, you have to read through the end of the book. Uh, as Azul says, it was like God saying, "Okay, can uh, can't can't you die? Here you go with another apartment." Oh, oh sorry. He says, "Can't let you die." Uh, God said, can't let you die. Here's another apartment. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin says, yes, there is a Kindle app for PC. Okay. Oh, there you go. So you can read it on your laptop, Stuart. Um, and then you just need to read through to the end. And I think there's also a, so you can't just scroll through it. There's there. So you have to like legitimately read it. Uh, before, so, but if you do legit, if you buy the book from Amazon and legit, legitimately read it and leave a review, that would be a tremendous, tremendous help for us because uh, that's the more positive reviews we can get on Amazon, the higher the book will rank uh, and in people's recommendations in their algorithm. So when Amazon recommends books and so on and so forth. Stuart says, that's great. <clears throat> I can get the app. Uh, best wishes is Azil and Attila. Okay, excellent. So listen, uh, we're 
coming up on uh, three hours and 15 minutes shortly. So why don't we uh, find out if there's anyone has any more questions or comments or concerns? Um, we will uh, show you our uh, spaghetti once more, once more here. We can zoom out and uh, there we go. That was our spaghetti for today. We started off with um, we started off with the law of diminishing returns, and we visualized it as the alm of life, and then we showed how we have three states of intensity. We have our uh, our baseline of awareness of mindfulness and self remembering, a self observation, self remembering, and then we have our uh, our work, our practical. And then we have our uh, our intensity, the trials, tests, ordeals, initiations. So we 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 fluctuate between focused efficiency and focused inefficiency, focused intensity. And we characterize them, or we uh, explain them using the pillars of severity and mercy, and the work, the union of mercy and severity which is we have uh, our baseline rest, we have our working exercise, our practice, our practical, and then we have our severity, our test tiles, our, our uh, ordeals. We related that to water. Water can flow or water can crash, but in the meantime, water can be very practical. It can become a cup. It can become a teapot. It can boil eggs. It can boil uh, pasta. It's, it can make coffee. It's very, very versatile and practical if we work with it between the flow and the crashing, the, 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 the ebbs and flows and the turbulence of boiling the water. These, uh, in between, we have the practical applications of water. And we describe this as arch and arc. There's a your quick summary of our spaghetti for the day. Trevor says, I'm glad I caught the live stream. Thanks again and all the best. Thank you for joining us, Trevor. It's your you were uh, I think this is your first time. You're new to the live stream. We hope to see you again. If there's nobody, uh, if there's no more questions or comments from anyone, um, we want to thank you for joining us. We want to thank you for helping us. Uh, Get as far as we have and uh, helping us have this restful day and helping us uh, unwind and unplug and <clears throat> prepare ourselves for the next round, the next level, the next revolution of the alm of life as we switch from writing to marketing promotion and context around, you know, and we have to update all of our websites and everything else. And there's also some more work that we need to do on the images and everything else in, in preparation for the publication of the book. Videos, there's lots and lots and lots of stuff that we have to do ahead. It's gonna be a different kind of work, but the intensity is gonna be there. Just, just a little different, a little different. Not the same, not, not stenography work, right? We're not gonna be taking dictation for three or four hours a day like we've been doing for nearly a year. So. Uh, but it is what it is. It's all good. Uh, we thank you. 
for joining us. And uh, we hope to see you again soon. Uh, and as always, we wish you from the bottom of our hearts uh, inverential peace. Goodbye, everyone. Have a great week. Mm -hmm.